Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman, chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. What's going on, you good humans? Welcome to a very, very epic episode of Good Humans Podcast. This is guest episode number 109 with Jesse McLaughlin. Get ready for this one. It's a mind blower. Big thanks to everyone who's a new listener here. If you could do me a huge favor, go hit five stars, leave us a little review on Apple or Spotify, and yeah, click subscribe, tell a friend about this podcast because there's so many incredible guests on here. There's so many stories that you can learn a lot from. So go back, check out the catalog. If you enjoyed the episode, share them on your Instagram story, tell some friends. I'm a one-man army. I do all the editing. I do all the recording. I do all of the interviewing myself. So if you can do me a little bit of a favor, if you're enjoying it, you can give back by just doing one of those things, telling a friend, leaving us a five-star rating or just subscribing. Thanks to everyone who does that. Hugely appreciative. A massive thank you, as always, to our sponsor, Drinker Rapper. These guys have been taking care of my brain and so many of yours for a long time. I seriously love this stuff. I have every morning one of the performance drinks gets me through the day. No crashing energy like energy drinks or coffee get me. But yeah, absolutely love this stuff. Also, the light and sparkling uh, fizzy one is so delicious at night. Calms the brain down. Good for um, yeah, getting a good night's sleep. If you want to learn more about their product, go back and check out an episode we have had with their neuroscientist, Sam Dodd, or Professor Andrew Scully. You can learn more about it there. Or you go to their website, drinkarepper.com. Use the code GOODHUMAN, 25% off everything on their website if you use that code. So go check it out. Also, a little bit of an update. For the last week, I said I'm going to give away two cases of a wrapper this week. The two winners of those cases are Olivia Pager and also... Um, sorry, who else? And Nikki Higgins. So I'm going to be, I would have already been in contact with the both of you. Congratulations. It's a case of a rep is coming your way each. I said I was going to be doing it for the next three weeks as well, but I've had some hard drive issues. Um, the three episodes I recorded in New Zealand with Drink a Rapper have to be postponed two more weeks away as, yeah, I couldn't download the files because they were massive. So we're getting a hard drive sent over, but I'm going to Bali today when this episode comes out so i'm gonna to have to put them up when i get back so i've got two other episodes for today and next week which you're gonna love so how good's that um okay today's episode is with jesse mclaughlin oh, this chick's amazing um you know when you meet those people that you're like how the hell have you done so much in such a short time and have such a mature head on your shoulders so jesse was born in brisbane um into a family of doctors and physicians had an upbringing that was quite privileged she as she says but maybe not in a loving way that she might have hoped for as all we all we all hope for is a bit of love um but yeah a, a nice upbringing she then had to care for a grandmother from 13 years old um which she really enjoyed doing so that was a big chapter in her life she then went over to america to chase a music career which she had a bit of success in but she realized it wasn't quite for her so then she went, you know what, I do want to work in medicine and be a bit of a doctor and understand this world a bit more. So I started to work in LA um, alongside some 
physicians and yeah she just found herself in some really really interesting places she met through her music career some people who gave her some leg ups in when they needed some help medically and she became the personal kind of physician and medical help for a few of the big stars in LA and yeah it's, it was crazy hearing some of the stories you're gonna hear out for them in this episode but then what I truly truly admire about this girl is the way she gives back she found herself actually in half a million dollars medical debt because of something that happened in America. She talks all about it in the episode. It's going to blow you away. But then what she learned through that is the, um, that a lot of bankruptcy in America is like 60% of um, homelessness in America is because of medical bankruptcy. So this led her into wanting to give back to people who are homeless um, and started doing these little festivals in America, which grew to big festivals in America for homelessness. She's now 31. She moved back to Australia two years ago and has been trying to start these homelessness festivals in Australia. It's called Ultra. I'm going to have all of the stuff in the show notes. This episode's an absolute special one, um, doing some amazing things for the community. There's some really good little health tips within, um, but also just a wild story from a girl who has a really pure heart and is trying to give back in a massive way now. So go support Ultra. It'll be in the show notes. Um, I'm going to be involved in the festival as well. So keep an ear out for that. But let's get into the conversation. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Jesse McLaughlin. How you going, Jess? Doing great. I call you Jess. Yeah, you sure. <laughs> we're already there. Uh, so we're here. Jess is fine. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on Good Humans Podcast. I'm excited to get to know your story. We've been connecting a little bit over the last couple of months. You do some amazing work right now, but you've got a crazy story to get to the amazing work you're doing. You a uh, medical doctor, I guess. Are you a medical doctor? In yeah. America. In America. Um, yep. Yeah. Well, a DO that didn't transfer here, so I'm a med student. Okay, that's again. still cool. <laughs> you run a massive homelessness um, organiza- organization or event to bring awareness yeah, to it. Yeah, it's a non-profit in the US. Yeah, but our, we host a major activation outreach event. That's probably what we're best known for. And then our mentor programs that consistently run in between this very large annual event in well, Los Angeles. We're going to catch up to all this. And how old are you? Um, I'm 31. Wow. Okay. You've got a lot done in those 31 years and we're going to learn all about it. So as I told you quickly before we started, this is going to be a bit of a chronological about your story, getting to know the events that have shaped you to be the person you are today. So we're going to go back to the start to kick it off. But first I've got two questions. So actually one question and one um I don't even know what you call it. One little promo to start off. So we'll start with the promo. Big thanks to our sponsors, Drinker Rep. These guys um, take care of my brain and all of my guests' brain. Neuroscience drink, all clinically proven. Um, absolutely delicious. Hopefully you like black currant flavor. You told me you're a fizzy person rather than a still. So we're going to both have our fizzy ones today. So I'm going to let you... Have you tried it before? No, I haven't. Awesome. All backed by neuroscience. you like that as a, um Shall we American do a cheers? Train. Yes, we will. So actually, let's oh. open that first. A little a wrap of cheers and we'll get into this conversation. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, all backed by science. So Yum. only clinically studied um, double blind placebo drink in the southern hemisphere when it comes to neuroscience that actually has the proof oh, that it works. Give me that data. Mm. I, I froth will. on data. I will. I'll send you the data and I will um, <laughs> give you a case to take home. So big thanks to a rapper. Let's get into the chat. The first question I open, and I love always opening... My um, and there you go. Very well done. Turning the promo <laughs> to the front of the drink bottle. Um, the first question I ask everyone is, what are you grateful for right now in your life? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Especially after I've just like told you what my morning was like. Um, I would say one, 
you, grateful for you. I think I've been very fortunate with I enjoy like minds and getting to actually discuss similarities in um, especially in mental health space or nonprofit space. I think in Australia it's not so much a topic of discussion uh, from what I was used to in America. Um, so thankful for you because um, this is going to be great. But this one's odd. I am so overwhelmingly uncomfortable with where I'm at right now that that also has always been the crux of greatest growth and greatest achievement for me. Moving back to Australia has not been easy. It has just been like when it rains, it pours. Um, and I feel like I'm in a monsoon. Um, so I think this feeling though right now, because one thing I know is I can do hard things, is this feeling of overwhelmingly uncomfortability because I know good is about to come. I know change is about to come and the kind of change that we need, especially in the space in which we try to activate change. So great gratitude, faith. Yeah. Faith that good shall follow through the tough times. And yeah, I guess we're going to catch up to what's going on right now, the challenges you're facing and um, how you've adopted this mindset that you will be able to overcome the challenges that we do face. Yeah, I mean, it's been a wild ride since returning to the motherland. Well, let's go back to the start because I want to work out what took you to America, but then also what brought you back. So let's rewind way back to the beginning. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Life as a child? Something, I guess, the things I need to know about your upbringing that shaped you to be the girl you are today. Let's talk up until sort of high school days. Um, So I was born and raised in Brisbane. I'm the youngest of four. There's a bit of a gap between me and my eldest sibling. I was a bit of a surprise child. Um, I, my mother ran a very tight ship. Um, she's a physician. Her uh, father was a physician. Um, myself and all my siblings, we were all in chess club. We, oh, we got all... Got a chess club, we'll have a game after. <laughs> we all played two instruments. We all did our Amy B classical music exams. Um, I earned pocket money based off grades. Um, that was like $250 for an A. It was like $25 if you got a B and 50 cents for a C. Wow. So um, the ship was tight. Um, and looking back on it, it was definitely tough as a kid with the level of standards in which needed to be met consistently. But looking back, retrospect's a wonderful thing, mm. I wouldn't change it because that level of work ethic and discipline I have had since a child, and I also think waking up every day practising the piano, those sorts of things have now are like that is what is woven into my everyday life now waking up, making my bed every day. Like these small habits of consistently practicing those things are exactly why I have managed to get where I am. Um, and was, I think stru that structure. Was it balanced with love, care and nurture as well? Or was it quite, did you feel that as a kid? Oh, we, 
we're not, uh, we're a stoic family. I mean, my mum's parents were born in 1912. So it's of that, I don't think, I didn't grow up hearing like, I love you and <laughs> I'm proud. But I also, I hear those things now. Um, now that there's grandchildren, I think, you know, we're making a, a strong effort to ensure that those things are said mm. um, and verbalized. But I don't know, I received a lot of love from my grandmother. Um, I also, I don't know, it, it wasn't until I was in university or at, an, at a specific friend's house in university where I was like, oh, like people like hug, yeah, <laughs> you know, I was off. like, yeah, I was like, oh, <laughs> like people say I love you. I was like, this is so odd to me. Um, so until I was older, I didn't know, like my normal was my normal. Mm. So I, I wasn't really aware of that. I was missing something. Um, and I still had a really great community of people, but it also like coming from a place of having to be classically trained. Like I have always known from a very young age, the power of music or for me, like I have had such a strong connection to something I loved so much. Mm. Like, and that started when I was around the first time I remember, I would say I was around seven where I was, I could hear different beats in my head or I could count or listen to a song and then start extrapolating a lot of how many beats were in a certain song and how many instruments were in that song. And I think, I don't know, I found love in other modalities, mm-hmm. I guess. Interesting. Super interesting reflection. And it's funny, you sometimes hear of people who come from, I guess, and you'll agree with this, a place of somewhat privilege, family of physicians, <clears throat> great opportunities with sport, with uh, music from a young age. But then quite often not quite often, it sounds like in your situation, it didn't have the balance of some of the things that people who don't have the privilege might have had the love. So it's like we all get brought up in such unique ways and it's so mm. nice for you to reflect and say, oh, maybe I found love in different places like music and other things, which is a pretty mature mindset, I guess, to have from a young age, but something, yeah, it's an interesting one. Let's get to high school. Obviously very strict um, around your grades and trying to do well in school. Uh, how'd you find the high school experience? Um, I loved high school and I think I loved high school for many reasons. Um, I'd started writing music when I was in primary school. I wrote my first song when I was nine. And from that point, I was always writing music. It's funny, since I've moved back, recently I found a, um, I, I don't know if I'd call it a journal entry, but I have it written down. I would have been like eight maybe at the time. And I had written in this book when, and it's like 2000, when I grow up, I'm going to be a singer songwriter and a physician like my grandfather. Wow. And it's funny. It's like thoughts become things. Mm. And like, that's although like over 20 years ago now. So, um, but I, moved out of home when I was 13, uh, to be my primary, the primary care of my 93 year old grandmother. So, um, my high school experience was a little different. I loved it. Again, this was my normal. Talk me through that. How does that happen? If you've got, um, well, all the siblings that are out of home and you're last one left with the family and 
not um I was not many people were present in the house. I was kind of like left to my own devices. Um, again, normal to me. I was very independent since I can remember. Um, and I moved in with my grandmother because mom and dad were too busy working. They couldn't yeah, care and it, for her. And it just was also like, she's, she took such a big role in raising me also. Mm. Um, and honestly, when I lived through some trauma when I was younger, um, and one of the greatest things that has happened in my life is living with her because when someone is born in 1914, your perspective on life becomes real. Like your actual problems when someone's talking about living through the Great Depression living and waiting all wars. these, yeah, living through all these things um, and trials and tribulations and what real resilience is. Um, I don't know. I thought she was just magic and she was someone that she'd kiss me five times, like every day. And it would be, she'd be giving me a goodbye kiss from God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit, my grandfather and an angel, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, so I received love and support from these other places, but that definitely came from her. And I think I went to a private all girls school. We had a head nod. St. Rita's College and I've spoken um, to St. Rita's College I've done presentations oh really yeah I had the greatest time a great school beautiful school beautiful school um and I I remember though like when everyone else is you know worried about a boy or what are they gonna wear to like the next dance and things like that I would be like oh I'm gonna go to cook grandma's dinner or go put her in the shower or Whatever it was. independent from a young age. Yeah, but I also think my hierarchy of needs have always been different. Like, even though I've always belonged, I have always felt like the underdog. Like, the way I've thought has been very different mm. because I'm not a do not follow the pack. I am very curious. I question everything. I even question myself now. Like, sometimes when I have thoughts about things, I'm like, why? why do I stand for that one thing? And I'm so, I'm constantly playing devil's advocate. And I've been doing that though, like since I can remember. Um, And then also when I was 13, I was actually diagnosed with my first serious medical condition. And that also changes the way in which you can connect with others. Because I then required to take a lot of medication every day. I was on and off steroids. And then that changed the way you look. Um, and that's something that my peers could not understand. And I also, I think one of the things I've learned, um, to change about myself, like evolve is growing up in a stoic family. You do not ask for help. Like growing up, it's like, if I was drowning and you're on a boat, God, I would hate to inconvenience you to like mm. ask you for help. And I'd be like, I'll figure it out. Like you just keep going. Um, whereas now I'm in a place where I can be like, okay, these are, these are what my needs are. Can you assist? Mm-hmm. Whereas back then I couldn't. And I felt um, in high school, that was a bit harder to connect because no one else has, you know, an autoimmune disease that has no cure or. What autoimmune disease you have? Um, I've got a few. <laughs> smorgasbord. But, yeah, I'm a smorgasbord, <clears throat> but um, it requires like 
constant um, infusional therapy. Um, I woke up with missing vision for a while. So there's been a few challenges and even now I have a pretty serious medical issue that I'm facing, but you will never know it Mm. because I won't complain about it because my worst day is still somebody's best day. Mm. And so, and I just have to keep it moving. Like I will continue to show up. I will just keep moving the steps each day. Mm. And that's just how I've always operated. I feel like I get to know your childhood now a bit, your high school life, how you brought up, bringing up your, well, not bringing up your grandma, but supporting your grandma and living in what seems like a supportive, maybe financially and structure wise, but maybe not with the love and maybe warmth that maybe um, someone needs at that young age. But it also sounds like it's really shaped you to be who you are, super independent go-getter who's um, lived quite an extraordinary life post high school. So I want to get up to there. What were the goals finishing high school? Did you think life was going to look like after high school and how the hell did you end up in America as a doctor? (laughs) Talk me through that. Um, Let's go. What did you thought you were going to do when you left high school and what that last year of high school getting grades and whatnot was like? The goal was performing for sure. Um, And like this was also pre-YouTube era. Like I knew I always wanted to write music. I'd been writing music for a really long time. I'd been recording music throughout the whole of high school. I used to have friends that would lock me in the stairwell till I would sing them songs till I could be let out. (laughs) Because for me, it wasn't necessarily, I didn't really want to be the person on stage. Like I grew up performing. I went to my first dance nationals when I was seven. Mm. Like I, I inherently have always had a creative streak, but I just, I'm a very private person. And so I don't necessarily seek validation about being like the person. Some people thrive being on stage and being in the limelight and Mm. want to be seen. I just want to create. Like for me, it's the art and the purpose and the joy that that's always brought. Um, At the time though, I had a a small um, record deal and a publishing contract. Um, At the end of high school? when I was 16. So I was in high school. Um, and that was just to write music. I'd recorded some music, we'd released it. And at that time, the industry's quite strange when there's so many unknowns within music. There's obviously now you've got all these different platforms where you could independently release whatever it is you wanted. Mm. But I had, um, I had written some songs, they got picked up, we did a digital release with Island Def Jam in New York. Yay. I thought I was like, I'm away. Yeah, we've done it. Um, but unfortunately I didn't, I think looking back and I also knew this in the moment because I had this gut feeling where I had absolutely traded in my authenticity for validation. I absolutely did that. And I think also being so young at the time, when you have executives telling you how grateful you're supposed to be, because, you know, you've been given this opportunity, you're like this little Australian, you're now in New York. I think one of the challenges I was faced with then was 
am I not being, am I not behaving grateful enough? Like, well, they're releasing songs I don't really like. Mm. This is not really what I had envisioned. I didn't feel respected as an artist or that I really had a voice. But I'm saying yes because I'm supposed to be grateful. And this is why you're still in high school. Like you got brought over there and stuff. And then no, what? so this is this is just after high school. But so you did well at high school. I feel like yeah, I want to learn how the medical stuff comes about because oh. it sounds like the music stuff was a dream. But then once you got that taste of it, it was like mm, maybe this doesn't actually align with who I am, what my values are. Maybe I don't want to be in the limelight and be this person seeking validation. So you got that after school, but you're obviously juggling, probably trying to get a 99 point something in your university score so you can go and study medicine. So I mean, how did you juggle did, the music and the study? I mean, I did uh, good time management, like, and also discipline. Mm. I'm a very disciplined individual. My life is very structured, even where there's fluidity in other mm. places. Um but I, so when I was in high school, I used to have to submit to my mother a six-hour study plan before I could go to my, like, basketball and volleyball games wow. or, like, a party. So that is where that comes in <laughs> to answer your question, I think, academically. Were you living with your mum, though, or with your grandma? With my grandma, I would still submit. But you'd still have to send your mum a study plan, even though she wasn't caring for you. Mm-hmm. People all live such different upbringings and lives. Yeah, but I don't know. It's really like she's incredibly supportive, yeah, yeah. like now, but it's just you, you know, didn't know it's any differently. Yeah, it's taken us some time yeah. to get to this point. Um, yeah, so let's talk about post high school. You've gone to New York. Don't really like the music. Have well, so during primary school though, I used to go on house calls with my mum and my grandfather before school mm-hmm. when they would go see patients, and that was kind of the first, I, I think, taste of like wow um and my grandfather used to always say to me the way in which you should behave in life is to act justly love tenderly and walk humbly and i have applied that to my life the best i can Mm. since he ingrained that as a child and um i have such fond memories of being in the surgery with my grandfather and even seeing my my mum's level of warmth and care for patients is profound Mm. and like being so aware of like how important humans are and to care for them. Like that's a true privilege. Um, And so I actually did an undergrad in biomedical science. I'd I'd done a few university things. um, In Australia? In Australia. Um, And when I was in New York, because I already had undergrad degrees, I, um, I um, decided, you know, I still have this feeling where I I know I want to be a doctor. I also didn't want to go into medicine straight out of school. I wanted to go live my life. My parents only went overseas for the first time. I think they were like 50 because their life, like our whole lives have been around medicine and these family practice and those kinds of things like patients have very much come first Mm. and I've observed that and I wanted something different um so yes when I was in America I I was like oh I really want to do medicine I just not right now and so um during New York I was still doing music and um 
changed uh, my contract to publishing so I could just write music and I actually write under an alias. Um, and that's kind of, it's gifted a different level of freedom where mm-hmm. I can do it because I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved to California and um, that's when I was like, okay, I think now's the time. How old are you, 20? I am 23. I um, am living in California and I was like, okay, I'm going to start applying to some schools. I went to a school um, in California that I did um, alternative medicine, which is a DO school. You can still go be a surgeon and it's just a different formatting in the US. Um, I did that. I had a strong interest initially in what's called internal medicine. Um, similar to a GP or a specialized physician, I also, with my medical conditions, I was like, oh, like, could I ever be in surgery? I like the idea of surgery because playing the piano, like I'm tactile. Mm. Like the one thing I have is surgical dexterity. Yeah. Um, and I thought I'm not going to be able to probably be in surgery because of my conditions might be inhibitory. Um, Turns out they're not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, um, so I started working in that. And the way I'd I'd been posting online, just basic educational things around health, um, down to how much water you should be drinking per weight and height, like what I would deem idiot proof. Mm. And it was like, I was astounded at how many people didn't know very basic basics, things yeah. but i realized uh, a lot of those basics i specifically learned in um like health and physical education in high school mm. it's like we or like we have commercials on television about those a lot of like healthy habits and things like that like move your body but we don't that's the thing especially in america but nothing's advertised unless somebody's profiting off it. And quite often these things like drinking more water, exercising more, unless it's selling an exercise product. Generally, we're not told these things like doing saunas, doing ice baths, like all these different holistic approaches, practicing gratitude, practicing kindness that all have unequivocal data now that proves make your well-being better. Mm. No one's running ads on TV about it because no one's marketing and making profit off it. So that's why people who share very basic information quite often get recognized for it and don't realize the impact it has on so many because it's stuff that isn't really shared unless we learn it at school. And even at school, we're checking out on half the lessons anyway because our attention's evaporated. So, yeah, it's people need to be able to relate to someone for the message to actually be absorbed and then to take it on. And that sounds like maybe what started to happen with you. Yeah, I think so. I also think so. Obviously, with my background of performing, I then also was relatively known within a demographic yeah. <laughs> of um, performers or and or artist managers. And so um, I was brought on to help a certain individual. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we'll protect medical names. But so, yeah. you, so at this time, you're, I'm just trying I'm to like wrap inter- my head doing internal medicine. So, so you're doing internal medicine because mm-hmm. I think me and most people who are listening will think, oh, to be a doctor of medicine, you have to do like eight years of a degree. But it's a funny thing where it comes to like educating and offering good advice to people. Like what is qualified? 
So there can be someone who's done all the study in the world that can't connect with a person or get the message over the line that might help one or two people in their life. And then there might be someone who can just point people in the right direction, information that's profoundly going to impact millions, but then they get deemed as unqualified compared to the qualified person who's actually making zero impact. Mm. But well, yeah. So yeah, how does it work if you're a couple of years, you've done a few <laughs> degrees in Australia, yeah, then so you go I, to America a few, but then people just trust in your information and you're helping people. Yeah, I also think like I am my approach initially and like where I worked in internal medicine specifically, like we were very minimalistic on pharmaceutical use. Yeah. And she already was working with the Lakers and a lot of other organizations where a huge emphasis was placed on how to educate the patient. Cause the idea is I don't want to see you forever. Exactly. You know, like I want to take you on a health journey that I'm a buffer when you need it. Mm. But I also don't want to be, I don't want some codependency. Mm. We should be empowering a patient, especially when it's, when you're not someone that has a diagnosis of, a disease that doesn't have a cure or needs long-term management. If you have issues that are completely preventable, like high inflammation, yes, then we should be educating that Mm -hmm. and how small, simple habits can be applied with consistency and how you can better your overall health. Rather than having to take a pill every day for the rest of your life. Yes, Mm -hmm. and it's hard there because the way in which media has manipulated pharmaceutical use is as if, like, you take that pill, you're healed. Problem solved. Only America and New Zealand, the only two countries in the world that are allowed to market pharmaceuticals on TV. Crazy. Yeah, that's wild to me. Um, So, yeah, so you start seeing a few high-profile people, Judy, connects through the... um, music and yeah i guess once yeah, you get can, one it was then like and get results and then it's like a avalanche it's like now their agent wants to see you and also then it turns into what's called concierge medicine and this is only something that you would get in america yeah. where it's like in australia we'd call it a house call yeah um you don't really get paid extra for that um, going to do a house call to a nursing home or what have you. Um, in America, it's deemed concierge medicine. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great... Come to the house and get a great tip on top yeah, of it. It's just thing. like mm. a... I don't know. It's a it's a strange thing, but it's it, like, again, that became my normal. People, um, the rich and famous don't want to go to doctor's surgeries. They have, the doctors come to them. Yeah. Um, or go visit them on tour. And so then yeah. I started doing those kinds of things. Um, I still had this desire where I wanted the opportunity to see if I could ever be in surgery. Um, and so I was working part-time in internal medicine and then this, my medical mentor, who's like the greatest gift to have ever entered my world, um, gave me an opportunity to start coming to surgery with her and see how I like it and join in her research teams um and so that was in um ocular plastics and ophthalmology surgery um honestly the operating room's like the greatest place on earth really yeah i can walk in i just feel a sense of calm of like i don't know i not it's a, a place sense of fear? no wow. and i'm the kind of person that i'm like feel the fear and do it anyway it's a i try to remain childlike in those kinds of Mm. 
moments because when you're a child, it's like you could be knocked over a hundred times and you'll always keep getting up. I try to keep that mm. sort of mentality. As long as you just do your absolute best and nothing else matters. Yeah. We always joke. We're like, it's the Super Bowl for every single case mm. because like that's how you want to show up for a patient. But um, I think, yeah, I started, I was also with this surgical boss. Her patient caliber is you know, the astronauts and the Nobel Peace Prize winners. And it it's just such a different... The world I live in America is so different mm. to the life I live here. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I, I'm pretty adaptable at this point in my uh, life. I just went on tour with Fisher. I can tell you there's a few different lives being lived out there. <laughs> it's um, well, a you big just wide world yeah, out there. I was like, you've just experienced my, like, a decade of my life. Like, yeah. that is how... You lived through your 20s. Yeah, that's... That's my mode of transport. That's, I mean, the things I've experienced or been able to do, sometimes I'm like... <laughs> that you can't really talk about because, <laughs> I'm because like, of... How is, like, how is this my life? Although when it, the first, well, it wasn't the first time this happened, but um, one of the earlier stages, uh, I just moved to California my friend buys and sells private planes. That's just mm. neither here nor there. <laughs> but I was on his plane and we were... I just want to preface this story. Now that I'm thinking about it in my head, I sound like a wanker. Mm. But in no shape or form do I mean this to be such an ostentatious story. But this was just... Fill me in. I had, my some, I had some private jet stories recently. So <clears throat> um, let's go for it. But I was on this plane. We were going to lunch. And... Um, our mode of transport was flying and I was sitting in this plane and I had this one of our friends, friends on speakerphone with an ex American president with a very distinctive voice. Like, you know exactly who this guy is talking to. Mm. Um, and then an, a person on the other side who is just one, like co-founded a nonprofit that the co-founder won the Nobel Peace Prize. And then <laughs> this is like me. <laughs> I write music and I like dabble in, in medicine. And I was like, um, I was like, what am I doing on this plane? I was like, someone get me off this plane. And then there's like a billionaire in the back who like created like pop chips and all this other stuff. And I was like, oh my God. I think the, at that moment in time though, and I've changed I shortly thereafter changed the way I thought. I had this overwhelming sense that I had to be quite cruel to myself and tell myself I was unworthy to be on that plane in order to stay humble. Mm. And so that that then you go onto this hamster wheel of being like, well, you're not worthy. Like you're just this small little Aussie chick. Mm. Like what are you doing on this airplane? But my experiences in America became more and more like that. And I was talking to my friend who owned the plane and I, he was like, you are more than worthy to be here. Be a sponge. Mm. He was like, seize these opportunities and learn everything. Because even when I was growing up, my mum used to say, like, sit at a table and be quiet because only add value when you need to mm. or when there is something to add 
because that shows a true symbol that you can sit with yourself. Mm. And a lot of us can't. We find the silence uncomfortable, so we fill it with airy fluff. Mm. And so I've kind of like consolidated all of those learnings and was like, okay, I'm going to move forward. I don't need to belittle myself. I certainly don't post this stuff everywhere. I mean, unless you're in my close Instagram stories, do have any awareness of what my American life was like. Mm. I certainly am not grandiose about it. Um, As she finishes telling a story about it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just joking. (laughs) Except that one story. But that... That it gives is, context to the sort of life that you were living and the feelings that you were dealing with at the time of it because I think people can relate to that. And it, I'll give you two quotes that just to give people a little takeaway if they ever find themselves in situations like that. And it's something that I've um, been playing with recently and I spoke about this. I've spoken about it a few times on the podcast but and I got told this by a great friend of mine, Chris Soul. He said, as soon as you put anybody on a pedestal, that's the, they straight away start looking down on you. So if you put someone on a pedestal and look up to them, they're going to look down on you. So we need to put ourselves as even. And I love the way that you said, like, not having to talk unless it's worthy. And not that we don't have worthy things to say, but the thing that, the quote that comes to mind in that one um, that I love is be interested, not interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's such a good one. It's those little reminders that we need sometimes, like those little quotes and those little things, for me, are a big one. You know what I mean? When I'm in that situation, I think to that quote, um, be interested, not interesting. But I also think to that quote of, all right, don't put anyone on a pedestal because it's when they're going to look down on you. Like, what? No, they're all going to bleed in the same blood. They're going to die and be buried in the same dirt. Like, screw it. We're only here for a certain amount of time. We just yeah. try and live our life. Um, but it's also the type of patients I've had. Like, I've had billionaires. I've had Nobel Peace Prize winners. We've seen astronauts. We've seen, like, incredible human beings who have done incredible things for humanity. Mm. And, like, that's been the privilege. But when you meet them, especially in a medical context, you're meeting someone in the most vulnerable Mm, moments of their life. Absolutely. It does not get more human than that. Yeah. And I think that's probably the difference. I also grew up around performing. So Mm. it's also kind of, for me, I'm like, it's just another human. I mean, Mm. like I had lots of famous neighbors, you know, it's just, uh, everyone's allegedly someone in America or it's like one of the first questions I got asked when I lived in New York was like, what's my lineage and did my grandfather make a railway? And I was like, spot the accent. (laughs) I was like, I don't know what that means. I was like, Australia's been around since not long. Mm. Like for us to have like railroad (laughs) lineage. What do you mean? America's the worst railroad place (laughs) in the world. They can't build a bloody (laughs) railroad. Anyway, let's get away from talking about that sort of stuff. I want to talk just quickly before we move on to um, your work in the homelessness space. As a physician for someone who does help people, maybe no, you can't call yourself. Anyway. Med student in Australia. Let's talk about the, um, some of the most common things that you saw in patients, obviously no specifics, but maybe just some take home tips. Give us like three of the best health tips for your average person that you saw is a pretty common theme that maybe people can take home as just a little in the middle of the podcast, a little few takeaways for people or maybe like top three health tips that are simple that we should be doing in our lives. Ooh. Based on a wealth of knowledge that you have. Um, that people can do easily themselves that don't cost anything. There you go. I'll, I'll, I'll narrow the focus. I think consistently move your body at least four times a day if you can do it for 30 minutes. Four times a day? 
Oh, sorry. Four, four times, times a week. week. I was about to say four times a day. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, four times a week. Sorry. Um, if you can, I mean, one, because that is the cheapest endorphin you can ever get. Um, and I'm also some, I travel a lot at the moment. So if I can't, I exercise a lot, a lot for my mental mm. health and for, so I know I can do hard things. When mm. <laughs> I need to remind myself of mental grit. Um, however, if you can't manage that duration, then grab a skipping rope or pretend you've got a skipping rope, do it for 10 minutes, mm. just move your body. Um, and I think you need to do, never go more than two days without moving your body. I love that you say that. Me and my girlfriend, Carol, literally talking about this yesterday. I was walking along the beach last night. It was a beautiful afternoon. The waves were really fun. And I was telling her this feeling of like guilt that I have that from being a pro surfer to now doing what I'm doing, I just don't surf that much. And it's something that I'm like, oh, I feel bad. And it was a weird reflection. I was like, I feel bad that I'm not out there enjoying the ocean and treating the waves like a canvas and I have you know what I mean still probably in the top thousand surfers on the planet if I wanted to just go for a surf on any average day it was mm. shitty to like reflect on the ranking but the way I look at it is like I'm an artist that can draw on these waves in a beautiful way that not many people can and I'm not using that talent but then we dug a little deeper and I was like to be honest, one of the main reasons why I feel guilty that I'm not out there more is that I know that exercise is so important for me and I know getting that in nature is so important for me. And they're two things that I've really cut out of my life while I'm building this business. So she kind of reflected and she was like, I don't think it's guilt that you're good at doing it and you could be doing it better. It's just that you're not doing it because you know how good it is for you. Mm. anyway that's a weird reflection i had yesterday about me needing to and actually sorry this is where i was going so then i said challenged her i was like we should every day we live on the beach i was like i'll go for at least a 30 minute surf a day and you go for a 30 minute run and she kind of like i'm the nah and she's like i don't want to make a promise of that because and i was like why don't we make a deal we never missed uh, two days never two days in a row of missing it so there you go that was coming back to full circle what you said try never to miss a day never miss two days in a row yeah it's a it's a habit thing Mm. so it's a lot harder to get back on the horse once you stopped. Yeah. Yeah. The, and two days. Mm. So I definitely think add that, um, little myth buster, uh, breakfast is not the most important meal of the day. Breakfast was added because then food companies can say, Hey, eat an extra meal a day. Exactly. So I think, um, obviously consult your doctor, do what's right for you. All the yeah. <laughs> disclaimers, but, um, one of the greatest things you can do for longevity health is intermittent fast. Whatever that timeline is for you, whether it's eight hours, 16 hours, 36, just do what's right for you. But I think everyone should do that. Um, what does intermittent fasting do that's good for us? I mean, it just allows, allows your... to drop so we can there... burn more glucose, huh? Yeah, there's a lot of health benefits, especially from an inflammatory like factor. And for longevity health, half of what is created in diseases is inflammation. So it kind of recircuits and rewires your actual, some mechanisms and pathways to then go start healing those cells when you're not um, using energy, like consuming, that needs to be used up those stores. So um, intermittent fasting. And then... 
I honestly think we should all, I mean, the thing I miss most about America when it comes to health modalities is cryo. Like having it so accessible, it's expensive. However, cheap way to do it is cold plunge. Try to do a cold shower. You can do that yourself at home. That, I mean, with cold plunges, you definitely, it has to be a regulated thing, but it's been shown to show that dopamine can be elongated for a three hour period. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want the happy gene? Mm. Yeah. Cold, cold therapy and breathing and understanding these different things that can lower inflammation is so important. I've got an episode coming up in a few weeks for anyone listening right now with a guy called Nigel Beach, who's a amazing at that. We talked a lot about grounding. We talked a lot about our breathing through our nose to our diaphragm. Our diaphragm is the biggest producer of any inflammation stuff in our body. Mm. Just all these different things that I'm like, why do we not know this? It's all, it's not simple, but it's all stuff that we should all know. So thank you for sharing yeah, but those. It's also those things where you really can't, you don't necessarily make money off it. And it's also the things that once you hear them, you can't unhear them. So it's like, it's just good to expose people to them. So thank you for sharing that part of um, your little journey. There's two things now that we're going to talk about. The first, what happened to you? You ended up in half a million dollars medical debt. <laughs> and this is what got you to work yes, in homelessness. Yes, I did. Tell me about that. <laughs> Well, um, when I was in high school at St. Rita's, I actually used to tutor at-risk youth and I would feed the homeless. And so that was probably my first ever experience being exposed. And I remember the first gentleman I ever met and he'd fallen off a ladder and he could no longer pay his um, mortgage repayments. And I remember thinking then like, oh my God, that could happen to anyone. Like Mm. you could easily slip through the cracks. Fast forward to me living in New York. I caught a bacteria. Just in New York when you're in your early twenties before all this. Yes. Or? So I was in New York, um, early twenties. I was quite unwell. It was Fourth of July, so I was like, I'm going to the Hamptons. <laughs> Went out to the Hamptons. Was really not doing well <laughs> out there, and I was like, something's not right. I'm feeling incredibly unwell. Um, made it back to the city and, um, Ubered myself straight to the hospital. And, um, I ended up being in hospital for 10 days. I had a bacteria that they first misdiagnosed, but I was resistant to the antibiotics. Um, it's called Clostridium difficile if anyone (laughs) has to know what it is. Um, and I left hospital. Like I recovered, left hospital. And um, initially when I had left, I had an $8,000 bill. And I was like, okay, I can handle $8,000. But you had travel insurance, yeah, or medical no, insurance? No, this is when I lived in America. Oh. So I had medical insurance. I had secondary insurance. Wow. So as many insurances as one can have, I had. I had done all the right things. And then... Um, about two weeks later, I received a bill, <laughs> paper form in the mail that said $586,000. And at that time, that was roughly, you know, 800000 Australian dollars. Lol. <laughs> and I was like, what? I called the hospital and I was like, I think there's a typo on my bill. And they're like, no, no, it's your bill. And I was like, I'm sorry. And... That's when I realized you could do all the right things, 
So you give them your insurance. So mm-hmm. when you move, get into the hospital, usually in America, they won't take you in without the insurance. Why? And then the insurance said you didn't qualify because of. So sometimes they'll choose what they'll cover. They, you can, so the way it works um, in hospitals there. So it's up to the individual hospital to decide. They get to determine how much your saline costs or how much your electrolytes cost. And so one hospital might be $2,000. One might be $8,000. So I was there 10 days, you times it by 10, and then you're just seeing the bill go up and up and up and up. Um, There are loopholes to anyone that ever gets some insane hospital Mm. bill. My recommendation is see who's on their board (laughs) in the hospital and see if you can appeal um, your hospital bill. That's what I initially did. Not everyone is aware that you can even do that. Um, and there are donors that will help cover some of your medical bill. Um, I still had to pay like one fifth of my bill. Um, Big bill still. Huge bill. Um, for deposit for a house. 20s, yeah. Um, and and the horrifying thing I will say about that is I again was doing everything correctly, and I was doing the right thing, and they will still send debt collectors calling you every week even though I was paying off this bill. It just, mm. and yeah, it's... Scary. So yeah. you stayed in America even while all this was happening. Yeah. Through well, the fire. Yeah. It was my, it was now my home. So, um, and uh, honestly, like, it would take a lot for me to give up. So I'm then, not a person that So that, that happens and that's why you stay in America. You start working in the medical industry. <laughs> it's crazy you didn't have a sour taste in your mouth and be like... Fuck the medicine industry, fuck America, I'm out of here and just leave it. But so then you start working. I rise there. to the occasion. Yeah, That's started just how I learning operate. a bit more about the industry, probably having some people around you that you make a decent living so you can at least start to pay this off. Mm. But then medical bankruptcy also yeah, is almost fifty six percent of homelessness in America. Yeah, so let's talk about this next chapter. So while you're paying your bill, while you're doing your medical um, training and working with these different patients for the stars. Is this why you start building, um, what's it called? We are love oh, festival. Um, Skid Row kind of love. Yeah. Um, so in 2015, um, the first one actually happened to be on, uh, my birthday. It started off as a small, um, gathering in like a, in the mission car park, um, Justin, Chris, like a a wonderful collection of people all came together to be of service. And um, it was a small barbecue, maybe 800 people came. Um, And it was such a phenomenal day that it then from that one day turned into an annual event. And when you're 23, 24, you're dealing with your own medical bills, you're seeing all these other people dealing with it exposes you to what's really going on out there. Yeah. And when I was living in California, I've always tutored at-risk youth. And I think, I mean, if anyone's seen The Blind Side, mm. it is more those stories than not. Mm. Or, you know, Pursuit of Happiness. It is more those stories than not. Mm. And, like, I, I've always strongly felt like I'm not here to teach others, how, like, how to be a good person, like that's a personal choice. Like your mm. personal discourse and um, 
moral compass, like that's on you. But what I am here to do is to encourage you and remind you what it is to be human Mm. and to stay curious, not judgmental. Because that's the, like that has got to be the bottom line. We Mm. can be drenched in stigma all we want, but I could have easily slipped through the cracks. Like, Mm. It's just so easy to do, especially right now in this economical climate. Like we just, compassion has to be the thing that we we move the tipping scale forward for. Mm. And that takes a lot of practice because what I advocate for, what you advocate for, this is not, this is not someone else's problem, mm. you know, what we're discussing and what we're trying to activate change for. Like... If you are living in this society and you are slightly more privileged than someone else where you have a roof over your head, you consistently know that you have your next meal, you are not living in food poverty where you have to skip a meal because you can't afford it. Mm. If those are the choices in which we get to live in this safe country, the things I'm desensitized to around like carrying a taser, hearing guns, those kinds of things, if we get to live here in this safe country and you're taking from the community well, best believe you better repour it mm. and you have to refill. And there is a fine print in the, in the contract of life that you live in this safe community, then you need to contribute to it. And that's kind of what we try to encourage in America too, because you're visually seeing it and mm. it shouldn't have to be, you see it to believe it. Mm. But we're starting, I don't know, I don't know if it's a post-pandemic thing where because we couldn't touch each other or because a a huge activation of touch is this place in your orbitofrontal cortex which activates your reward centre and compassion. Mm. Like maybe, maybe because we didn't have that touch during like the pandemic we've lost connection to ourselves and then therefore to others. Like, I don't know what it is. And I know that we've touched on it, but I'm so curious because I'm like, I just need to understand like, Mm. what is it that we are now not connecting the way we used to all like making the actionable? Because the thing is ease and ignorance is the most inhibitory thing to progress Mm. than hardship that's problematic Mm, it's crazy it's because we promote hyper individualism success of the individual over people who are creating community over people who are bringing people together over championing that guy who walks across the street and helps an old lady nobody that gets seen or Mm. gets praised for that so with the world we live in with like hyper marketing around these celebrities and people who look like they're doing good things. It's like, no, we need to realize that it's a community effort to try and bring up the people in community struggling. I want to quickly, before we um, catch up to what you're doing here in Australia, what was the last year or two like in America with Skid Row Festival, which has now inspired you to do Ultra in Australia? And then what, um, yeah, what led you to coming back to Australia and now catch back up to, as you said, you've kind of been dealing with some struggles with the transition back to Australia. So Let's talk about the last year, the success um, of Skid Row Festival, what it was, what it is, so people can understand the concept that you are trying to bring to Australia. Um, then, yeah, talk about what we're we aiming for here. 
So 2020, yeah. like just, so January 2020, we had 10,000 guests that were served uh, at the event in Los Angeles with like 3,000 volunteers. Um, what the festival is, is in real time, we connect marginalized individuals to services, essential services. So you can see a doctor, psychologist, get your eyes tested, brand new pair of glasses. And then you've got other elements of like, you can sign up for um, mental health plans for one whole year, job services for a whole year. And then we have the fun stuff of like, you can get a brand new pair of shoes, brand new outfit, have a shower. And then the element of festival, which is like festival games. And we always have live music because for me, mm, music's music. so important. Yeah. Um, and we know that doesn't, there's something enigmatic about music where you don't have to know the language in which or understand the language in which it's being sung in, but you like, you feel it Mm. and it brings uh, people together and creates community. And it's also such a privilege. I've been so privileged in a lot of the experiences I've had in America or like concerts I've got to go to. And I feel like not everyone, some people live their whole life and like never see a live show. Mm. And so that's also a, a part of the celebration that we try to celebrate uh, our guests. And um, I really always say it's celebrating the humanity within homelessness. And um, the most special thing I find about the whole festival is that every guest that enters is partnered with a tour guide, a volunteer tour guide. So it's, I see you, you're valuable. You're not wearing an invisibility cloak and you matter. Mm. And the individual gets taken around to each of the services and they're interacted with. And I think that I actually met a man called Mike who I mentor to this day. He's a veteran, he's no longer homeless, but he now has a four bedroom house that he rents out the rooms to transitioning homeless individuals to help them get back on their feet. Wow. It's like, that's the fiber of what humanity and society should be. Mm. Those things. I love that. So you've killed it in America. You got this festival off the ground, helping thousands of people. What brings you back to Australia? COVID, yeah? Um, there is a host of reasons. <laughs> reasons. I mean, the main reason I brought question. you back here because then I want to um, talk a bit. <laughs> and I think it's important once we get to Australia to start talking about some of the statistics, some of the um, things that are going on. Obviously, we had Ned Brockman just run across the country to raise awareness for homelessness, but... I think there's obviously so much work to do. Um, but yeah, so what brought you back? And then, yeah, let's talk about the last three years. More visa situation happen. Um, so that is the crux of... Visa pro- troubles. That's why yeah. you're here. It's fine. That's um, all you need to say. <laughs> <laughs> and there's only so much you want to keep paying an immigration attorney. Yeah. Um, I mean, I still very much have a life in America. Yeah. Like, I have a, I have a place there. I have... I can still go back and I'm, I just published research with my surgical boss. So my life there is still very much, I still write music for people that are there. Mm. Um, and I, I, it will always be my home. I lived a third of my life there. Um, but I also love Australia. I, I love being home. I also think like long term wise, I always wanted to make sure I could be medically licensed in Australia. Um, just because I don't know, like, I want to raise my kids like going like skateboarding and surfing and like doing all the things mm. 
I used to do for fun and yeah and like what I would do with my friends um and one safety is such a big thing like where I lived in Beverly Hills the fact I had to carry a taser during the pandemic was pretty horrifying Mm. I also worked in the pandemic and that was horrifying um yeah it's not so when did you come back 2021 okay let's talk about what's happened since you've been home someone who's not qualified per se in Australia to practice um, what you were in America, mm-hmm. but also a big passion for helping with homelessness. What's the, what's this chapter two years been like in Australia? Challenging. Well, I mean, for a lot of last year, I wasn't actually in this country. I was still back in America, but there was a lot of back and forth. Um, but it's been, I always knew uh, because of how much I had volunteered when I was in my teens that I really wanted to bring the charity to Australia eventually. It was just a time, whenever the timing is right. Um, so I knew All True had to come here. Chris, my co-founder, was like, let's do it. Um, and so I started, that was a long drawn out process to get the charity status and the DGR status and, you know, all, the fun, red, all, yeah, all the fun red tape. Um, so now that all of those ducks are in aligned and they're all in a row, I, um, now we're in full momentum of planning the old true festivals here. Um, and the long-term hopes similar to what we did in the U S is the blueprint is flexible enough to, mm-hmm. uh, move. Um, one of the things initially when I'd started probably like November last year was, I, I don't want to say lack of awareness because I can't speak to everyone, but from my experience and responses I have received in emails when I have sent 3,500 emails for sponsorship, um, it's drenched in stigma as if because we have social services, this sounds like a self-inflicted problem by this demographic of individuals. Mm. But again, it's so easy to slip through the cracks it's it's not a one-size-fits-all it's a very complex issue um unfortunately when people specifically don't have enough money the first thing they'll cut out is taking their medication mm-hmm. so then that has a different rise and exacerbation on mental health so there's just there's so many issues but this is a, a one-day event in which we can bring all these individuals allow them to have immediate access to services, not put them on a wait list for the next three to four years or any of those things. Uh, For immediate needs, it can be met. And then again, we will have the programs of mentoring and tutoring all year round to provide ongoing support. Um, Let's talk about the problem that we do have here because I feel like a lot of people are quite unaware. Give me some numbers of homelessness in Australia, of... um, You've spoken to me about this in conversations we've had on just like the reason why more people like people are homeless in Australia and then our lack really of awareness around it here in Australia. I think And give um, me a, like what is it like three million people are living below the poverty line. There's a lot more than we see and then as well, like you said, as Aussies we kinda of go brush it to the side and expect the government to take care of it when they're not. So it needs people like you and like us, the community, the good humans who listen to this podcast to raise awareness, to be active in these different um, 
volunteer efforts to try and bring the community up. So yeah, give us some of the stats and the problem that we do have with homelessness and um, at-risk people here. Mm, so right now, it's one in three working Aussies can't make ends meet. Like the fact that's a third of our country and we're not in a developing nation. Mm. You know, I think that a lot more of the haves are becoming the have-nots. Um, one in six children are growing up in poverty and even these stats I'm giving you I from what I have seen even in recently Musgrave Park a congregation of marginalized individuals I I think a lot of our stats are so significantly underestimated Mm -hmm. I've deemed it functional invisibility because more often than not I mean if if you're a homeless female or a DV victim and you have a child you're not wanting to be found. You're not wanting to be counted mm. because you don't want your child to be taken away. So there's, you know, again, the complexities mm. of these issues. Um, but that's why we just have to practice that little bit more empathy mm. um, or compassion. Um, but yeah, one in six Australian kids live underneath the poverty line. I'm like, the odds are already stacked against them. But then that has social detriments that elongate for the rest of society for the rest of time. Mm. If you can't get them off the hamster wheel, mm. then that's when, you know, domestic violence occurs, like, in their future. That's when, you know, crime then goes up. And so there's ways in which if we activate change over here in a, through a mentoring or tutoring program or help them here, then... You're setting them up for, yeah, yeah. like, let's think about prevention. Like, Mm. I don't necessarily see problem. I see opportunity. Yeah. (laughs) Like, now's the opportunity for us to rise to the occasion, to come together as a community. And Australians are great at that. We see it in natural disasters. But it's like, we need to do this as a consistent effort right now in order to help society as a whole. And then the fact that we have... You know, it's 3.4 million Australians live underneath the poverty line. Wow. Like, we have 400 remote communities that don't even have clean water or proper sanitation. Wow. You know, I'm just like, we're not... So how many people are living homeless, I guess, in Australia, estimate ballpark? No, I don't even think we'd be able to estimate it. I mean, allegedly, it's over 122,000 each night, but, like, Mm. it's one in 200... Mm. but even then I'm like mm. yeah it could be higher mm. than that so yeah let's talk about Old True Festival here in Australia what have you got coming up what services are um, people going to be able to access and yeah how can the community get involved I know I'm going to try well I am going to be there and doing um, some good humans in public or good humans at Outro. I think we're going to call it speaking to some people hearing their stories and just like you said humanising all these people that mm. do somewhat get left behind in society sometimes and subconsciously we almost blame them for the situation that we don't even know they're going through. So yeah, how can um, people get involved? What is Altru Festival here in Australia and where are they going to be? Uh, so we're hosting several. So we've got our first one at the end of this year and that will be uh, in South Brisbane in Musgrave Park um, in November. And then we've got our next one early next year and that will be in Melbourne. And similar like the US, we want the blueprint to go and host these festivals in different communities um, across Australia, uh, again, as Australians, who doesn't like a party? It's mm. a party for a purpose. 
Um, it has a similar setup to what it is in America, but just making sure that we provide the needs to Australians. Um, so that's going to be medical tent and saying you can see a doctor, have your eyes checked, sign up to a psychologist. And then we have the elements of like, you can get a haircut, go have a shower. Some other great nonprofits are all coming on board to provide these services, um, which is great because collaboration will be the thing that can truly like greatest good for the greatest number. But also it's important for our guests to know what exists for them all year round. Mm. Like all true provides mentoring and tutoring all year round, but knowing that you can go to this one place and if you have hep C, they'll, they'll track you for one whole year to make sure you get your regular medical treatments Mm. or if you need a vaccine or whatever it is, these other nonprofits allow consistent, Mm. Um, and regulatory work uh, because they are, you know, grassroots level. Yeah. So there's there's not so much red tape. Mm. Like we can really activate a lot of that change. Yeah, and that's uh, so if people want to sign up to volunteer and be involved in the event, so something through the website, I'll leave it all in the show notes um, for each of the cities if people want to get involved. Because, yeah, yeah, it's predominantly it's, it's on the website. Big. Yeah, volunteers are, are a big thing uh, because we do like to have every guest being able to have a tour guide in that Mm. constant interaction it also like creates a level of safety creates a good vibe Mm. it's also um you know in america we were lucky we had a huge like huge support from the university of like southern california at usc and they brought lots of students Mm. because that's we're trying to engage in you don't have to be 65 and retired to now all of a sudden give back like it's trying to encourage what we can all do now. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a financial donation, sometimes four hours of your time. Because the wonderful thing about this event is you see in real time where your either your dollar donation and time donation went in creating joy for someone else and mm. the gift of possibility. And you actually see it. Mm. And then that's my favorite topic, social genomics. <laughs> and you actually fully feel on and see all the good that is created. Mm, I love that. And quickly before we finish, I just want to just bring to light, because we've spoken about this um, in our coffee dates we've had a few times, The tr- not the trouble, but the roadblock you're running into of a lot of Australian businesses, a lot of Australian corporates saying, oh, no, we already do enough. And let's compare that to what they, what other countries are willing to donate compared to Australians. You are saying we're one of the worst and least giving countries out there. Yeah, I highly recommend everyone to go watch Daniel Pietre's uh, presentation at Blackbird VC on just the difference in Australian philanthropic giving versus every other, um, like the top, yeah, top 20 wealthiest countries. We are drastically behind, embarrassingly behind. And the interesting thing is, like, your everyday Australian or everyday person, the Aussie battler, like, donates Mm. and, like, will put aside money when they don't, like, they'll budget Mm. it. To try the best to give. Wasn't it with Ned Brockman's thing? It was, like, 90% of donations were from the everyday Aussie given 50 to $100 rather than these corporates and different organisations that are recording mega profits. Yeah. But then say, oh, no, we've given our... 
small yeah. percent that we need to the, a charity that's actually owned by our founder. I'm like, I get it. Like if you're, if you want a tax write off and you're someone that just financially donates, great. But it's, it's not enough. Like we need to be doing more. And now is the time to act. Yesterday was the time to act mm. because we have to start caring about what our society will look like for our children and our children's children. Mm. Disparity of wealth and when you have individuals down here with oppression, that is what my life looked like during the pandemic, carrying a taser to work because we had so many riots, so many angry people Mm. because they've been oppressed for so long. Like, we do not need to create a man-made disaster. Mm. Like, that is kind of... We're in a time now where we can activate the change before it's too far Mm. so we just need to encourage (laughs) that the best we can i'm i'm uncertain like i still am trying to like think of hypotheses as to why it's hard to get people to like action the change or you know do what they say they'll do Mm. it's i don't know what that link is i'm curious about it but it's it's becoming more of that than not though not much integrity anymore in society and it feels right. like it's probably because everything everyone's living in fear of cost of living right and i need to like just survive myself rather than right for sure but it's also those are the people though that are still the givers yeah i know but then the ones at the top are like we've got to keep them on the hands to will anyway it's so we're not gonna yeah it is so interesting but i'm um i'm very grateful for this conversation learning your story a lot more learning about the crazy journey you've been on, but leading you to a life of service and really trying to give back and bring light to some of the mega problems we do have here that a lot of us are unaware of, like homelessness. So I'm looking forward to All True Festival. Everyone listening, make sure you go to the show notes, click on the festival link, have a look how you can get involved, whether it be coming to volunteer, donating, um, and yeah, or just supporting the event wherever you can, getting it around to your community and making sure that um, the people who are in those dire needs in your community can attend these events so they can get the services they do need and um, yeah, hopefully to bring their life into a place that we all deserve to live, which is above yeah. that poverty line, which um, yeah, is so, so important. So the question I do finish all my podcasts with is um, very similar. Well, it's the same for everyone, but I'm excited to hear your answer. So what does being a good human mean to Jesse McLaughlin? Um, I try to live my life by um, how you treat others is the highest currency there is. Mm. And so being a good human is to try, because integrity is everything. And some days it's harder to practice that, but being a good human is trying to consistently consider the whole Mm, i love that very well put well thank you so much once again for sharing your story i'll leave everything in the show notes to find you um your festival and yeah the amazing work you do but yeah thanks so much for jumping on good humans podcast (laughs) (laughs) thank you hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com mm. 